I want to introduce a friend of mine. My name is John Ray. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Church. I get the privilege of, of serving the church um, as, as a, the head of the teaching team and as an elder. Um, but I get to do a lot of really cool stuff. And if you've been here at Grace Church for any length of time, you know that I spent five years commuting back and forth uh, to Portland to attend seminary there. And one of the first people that I met when I showed up in Portland was Daryl Harvey, who's going to bring the message today. And I, I, wish I, could, I wish I could take everybody here to that group, to that initial group, to where we started and then where we ended up. Daryl at the time was living in Michigan. He lives in Bentonville now, which is very convenient for me uh, with that. Um, but more than just a geographic move, I've watched Daryl grapple with some of the toughest issues that a human being can grapple with and experience the transformation of Jesus in his life in a way that is contagious, in a way that is profound, in a way that is challenging. And I have grown so much personally from being able to call Daryl and now his wife Krista friends um, that I'm really excited to share that with y'all this morning. So, uh, Daryl, come on up. I'm going to pray for him, and then uh, we'll hand it over. Father, you're so good to us. You're so good to us. Thank you for my brother, for your Holy Spirit in him, for his yieldedness, and for his willing to walk the way of the pilgrim, following you every day. God, you've anointed him, and we affirm that anointing on him to lead us into this place, this text, so that we can follow you more closely. Give him courage and strength, wisdom as he speaks to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. No pressure, huh? <laughs> no, it's great to be here. Uh, I've had the, uh, the pleasure of meeting with your teaching team group. I don't know if there's a name for that, but on Wednesday mornings the last couple of weeks, to get a, a more of a flavor uh, of who you are and what God's doing in your midst. And uh, it's, it really is a pleasure to be here with some of my friends. Today's one of those days at the end of one of those weeks uh, that for many has been very, very heavy. Uh, some have, have wrestled with things that you could almost stop and spend a Sunday on, couldn't we? But I would encourage you, no matter what's stirring in you today from the events of the week and things that you've read and interviews that you've watched and all that's going on, uh, allow today's passage, Luke 6, to, to inform where you are and what you're feeling and help move you to the places you should go and the things that you should say. I was chairing a committee uh, that oversaw church planting in the denomination I 
served in in the part of the state of Michigan where I grew up. And since I'm from Michigan, I'm going to do this. It was this much of Michigan, (laughs) central and southeast Michigan. And we were planning churches and trying to learn that out. And this was 10 years ago and uh, 14 years ago. And we had a couple come to just to meet our team. Uh, it wasn't an interview. It wasn't formal. It was just a couple from a couple states away who thought, we think God might want us to be a part of what's going on there. And it was a Tuesday, and we gathered, uh, me and about seven other guys that were part of this team, just, just to talk. And as you'd expect, someone uh, kicked it off and just, just tell us about yourselves. And so the husband and wife began to just talk about who they were and how they grew up and ministry and what it looked like. And, and someone else asked, you know, just tell us about your call. Just your, your call to ministry in general, this feeling of maybe a relocation and starting something new. And, and so we kind of walked around in that space for a while too. And it was pretty typical as, as we were getting to know each other. And then it was my turn, and I said, tell me about your last day off, your last, your Sabbath. And there was a shift in a chair, and he said, well, I I usually take Monday, that had been yesterday, and so we were really traveling here, so I said, oh, okay, no problem. Well, what about last week? Just tell me about your Sabbath last week. Um, Well, I, I... Something came up, and so Monday, I really needed to put in a day at the office, and we had some things going on. It was like, okay, that happens. I get it. What about, you know, a week or two before? Tell me about your Sabbath. I remember taking a couple half days off. I said, tell me about the last time you spent a whole day away from work. And he took a deep breath and changed the tone of his voice and said, listen, I get the concept of Sabbath. It got real weird after that. (laughs) And I've got to tell you, I, I can sit in his chair too. I can talk about how I get the concept of it while not practicing it. Quite often. Luke 6 is a passage about Sabbath. Verse 1. Jesus was going through the grain fields on a Sabbath. Sabbath. That day separate and different than all the other days. It was marked. It was special. Sabbath means rest and restoration. Luke noted that what was happening happened on a Sabbath. First time we see that word in Scripture is in Exodus 16. Sabbath is given to uh, these newly freed slaves that while they were free in body, they were far from free in mind or spirit. They had just come through the Red Sea, this miraculous deliverance that God had ended the oppression 
of their lives. For years and years and years, they work 24-7, 365, that their value and their worth in all things that were measured about them was about their productivity. And God gave them this gift. They, they were broken and enslaved people who still carried those chains, with, chains within them. And they were grumbling about what they did and didn't have to eat. God gave them a gift of Sabbath in the midst of their grumbling. In the midst of their scarcity mentality, he told them, only gather enough for today, except for the day before Sabbath, and then gather twice as much. He was trying to give them this gift to help them understand... I, I love you. You don't have to grab and hoard and, 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 and steal away. I will provide for you. You can stop. You can find rest and restoration in me. I've broken that oppression and want to help you walk in that way. And in Exodus 20, it's given his law to observe the Sabbath, to remember it, to keep it as holy. I, I come from a, a holiness tradition growing up. And so when I see that word or when I, when I think about holiness or those things, it, it, I, I cannot separate it from being set apart. That by God's declaration, that day was set apart from labor, from the other days, and for his glory, and humanity's goodness. It was set apart. This is part of the rhythm of our life together. And again, your worth does not come from how many bricks you make. Your value does not come from how much you get done. I love you. I'll provide for you. Sabbath was designed for many things. One of the most important was to break the oppression of endless work. But it's also meant to bring us freedom to something as well as freedom from something. The, the observance of Sabbath was one of the things that set the people of God apart from the people around them. It, it, was, it was part of the rhythm of dependence upon God. But, but it didn't just stay that way. When we're handed a rule or we're handed a law, when we're handed a guideline, it, it, well, it's just easier with a list, isn't it? Don't you wish your spouse someday would just give you a list and as long as I did those things, we're good. Come on, guys, don't leave me out here by myself. <laughs> But God wanted more than that. And so, so this gift of Sabbath became law to please God. The law that pleased God became something else. It became a measurement of one's devotion to God. 
And by the time it had trickled down to Jesus' day, it was this this evaluation, this tool, this this assessment of, of if you were in or if you were out, if you're a good Jew or if you're a bad Jew, if you were clean and righteous or just written off. That, that kind of is how it gets coiled up and paralyzes us going from a gift to a have to. Luke mashes up two Sabbath stories where Jesus does some radical things. The first one, Jesus and his disciples pick some heads of grain and rub them between their hands. Doesn't seem like a big deal, does it? But since that was reaping and harvesting, it was breaking the Sabbath. But we live in a very different culture, don't we? We, we live in a culture that dismisses Sabbath. We don't really legalize, become legalistic about it. We don't entrench around it. We, we just pass it aside. We pride ourselves on how many hours we work. We put the badge of busyness on every day. Every, every networking thing or, or a meeting that I go to and someone says, how are you doing? You know what the number one answer is? Busy. Oh, man, we're so busy. Good for you. What? Let's take it a step further. Luke 6, 2 through 5. Some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is against the law on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the sacred bread, which was not lawful for anyone to eat but the priests alone, and gave it to his companions? Then he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Why are you doing that? Well, haven't you heard about David? Haven't you read? Now, I have to point out that this is the one place in Scripture that I point to to say sarcasm does not have to be a sin because Jesus knew they had read about them. Jesus knew it was the Pharisees' job to know all the stories of David, all the songs of David, all the references and everything that he did. Of course they had read about David. And if we don't remember what David did and the story he was referring to, is in that time, David was leading his own band of odd little followers. He had already been anointed king by Samuel. And now Saul was still in power and David was waiting for his coronation. And by Jesus referencing that story, Jesus was saying, I am the anointed king waiting for my full coronation. And I am sovereign and above all your rules and regulations. So this is a passage about Sabbath, but it's not really about Sabbath. 
It's an opportunity for Jesus to proclaim who he is. What's going on? And that is the questions the Pharisees are angry about. They're always asking him why. Why don't your disciples fast? Why don't your disciples wash their hands like the rest of us do? Why don't your disciple, why do they keep eating with tax collectors and sinners? Why are you harvesting and breaking the law of the Sabbath? What they were really getting at is who does he think he is? And with this one story that kind of goes off our radar, but when we remember, he is saying, I am the one that you've been promised, and I am the one you've been waiting for. And the Pharisees cling to their list of laws and regulations. They cling to a set of principles and guidelines that are static, unmovable, when the Lord of all who is dynamic is is right in front of them. And I look at my life sometimes and my schedule or my routine or lack thereof and long for the comfort of a list when the Lord of life invites me to dedicate myself to him and to follow him and to step out into the mystery with him. And if you flip back, and as I listen to what was happening here the last couple Sundays, it's, it's just like three weeks in a row. Jesus is saying, who or what will be the object of your affection? Will it be a set of principles? Will it be me, a person? You've been waiting for generations for the promise of God and the fulfillment of the law, and now I'm here. I proclaimed it in my hometown, and the crowd wanted to throw me off a cliff. I, I demonstrated it with this invitation to fish and this miraculous catch, and a, and a few followed. I declare it again today with a story about our King on our most holy day, and I invite you to find rest and restoration in the Father. See, it's, it's, a, it's about Sabbath, but it's not about Sabbath. Luke brings into an, another passage that talks about another Sabbath. We don't know if it's the very next one. We don't know if it's a month from there. We don't, we don't know when the next Sabbath was that he talks about. But he says, on another Sabbath, in verse 6, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. Now a man there Who's right, and now a man was there whose right hand was withered. That he was disabled. That he was probably reduced to begging. Picking up in verse 7. The experts in the law and the Pharisees watched Jesus closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they could find reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up. And stand here. So he rose and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, 
Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save a life or destroy it? After looking around at them all, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. The man did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with mindless rage, and they began debating with one another what they would do to Jesus. As Jesus ministers, with every move, he is watched Closely and more closely. The term that's used there, that the Pharisees are, are uh, the way they're watching is, is really, really significant. It really is like they're spying on him. They're watching him even out of the corner of their eye. There's a, a sinister mood that's kind of cast over this passage with the word choice that were used in that passage. It's also clear that they were watching so they could accuse him. Watch him so they could take care of him. Watch him so they could stop him. But on this occasion, what did he do? He asked the man to stand up. He told the man to stick out his arm. He didn't even touch him. It wasn't illegal. Was it against the law or the traditions? But again, it was Jesus doing things that clearly showed him is above the law. Do you want to hold to a static list of rules and regulations? Or do you want to step out and follow a man, the promised one, the Son of God, into the mystery of life? into the new kingdom. <clears throat> that phrase, mindless rage. They went from seeing this to mindless rage. Irrational rage. Blinding rage. Rage that borders insanity. God's not supposed to help sinners. God's not supposed to bless people who break the Sabbath. And yet right in front of them was a Sabbath breaker helping a sinner live a whole life. See, I, I contend that, that these two stories aren't just separate Sabbath stories. I don't think Luke put them together out of uh, topical convenience. I think if we, if we look at them, we'll see some symmetry between the two. If you look at verses 1 and 6, and it's not going to be on the screen, but if you look at verses 1 and 6, you see Sabbath. We see the day set apart, the day... Uh, for rest and restoration with all of its written laws and implications. And there's movement. On Sabbath, there's movement. Into the grain field in one story and into the synagogue in the other. It seems like whenever Jesus taught his best stuff, he kind of said, let's take a walk. 
Think of the stories that come to mind when Jesus really made a point, when Jesus really poured into those who were following him. He would say, let's take a walk. And they would find themselves in the grain field or find themselves in the synagogue or find them in the house of a sinner. And I, and I compare that to, to his church now and how tempted we are not only to, to cling to the list and live by it, but reduce discipleship, reduce apprenticeship to Jesus to stop and sitting and learning. We need to move that into the classroom. When over and over I see Jesus say, let's take a walk. And I'm going to walk you into a place that will make you uncomfortable. I will walk you into a place that will become a disorienting dilemma. This was a disorienting dilemma. This was a disorienting dilemma. They were confronted with what they had been told, what they had been taught, what they had seen, with everything that was in that reservoir of of religious training in them. And Jesus turned it on its head. At my last church in Indianapolis, we talked about disorienting dilemmas a lot. It was part of our spiritual formation process that you would sign up and take a walk through Toronto for four or five days and stay at the hostel and, and meet people who you've always been told just aren't in the kingdom. Disorienting dilemmas have the opportunity to shape us and change us that Jesus could use to transform us. Or they can cause us to entrench like the Pharisees and, and religious leaders. We don't want any part of that. We don't want to rethink that. We don't want to have to think about what comes next if we give any attention to that. We don't want to open ourselves up to rethinking anything we've been taught. And entrenchment and rage quickly follows And eliminating the problem becomes the goal. In verses 2 and verses 4, we have some symmetry. Um, 2 through 4, we see the accusers asking Jesus, why? Why do you do that? And Jesus responds with a story. In verse 7 through 10, the accusers watch. And so Jesus demonstrates. In verses 5 and 11, We see Jesus proclaim his authority and the Pharisees are enraged because the power and control that they have is going to be slipping away if this takes root. That's what disorienting dilemmas do. They confront us. When we Speak against a group of people. That's easy. Until we see a face and learn a name. We can lead our business powerfully, confidently, 
until we're confronted with something that causes us to question, am I really even who I'm projecting? We can yell all we want that we get the concept of Sabbath as we busy ourselves into a heart attack in places far from God. See, I am of the conviction and believe that Jesus not only calls us into those places, he calls us as communities to, to provide those opportunities of disorientation and the dilemmas that can transform. That he calls us out of the safety of the classroom. That we confront things head on and meet people that with real names and real issues and can change those dynamics that are going on with us. That give us an opportunity to say, I've stopped long enough and I've rested long enough that I can admit, God, you're beyond me. And we can resolve not to shrink back to the list of regulations and rules that are so static. A cheap substitute in our time for the dynamic person of Jesus. I need to move on uh, to the last couple of verses of this chapter, or this uh, passage, Luke 6, 12. Now it was during this time that Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent all night in prayer to God, praying for healing, praying for preparation, listening and inter interceding, giving praise, seeking wisdom. Don't really know. We just believe that that is the kind of conversation that was happening. And I find it interesting that the one person who could play the God card, the one person without a Messiah complex, was the Messiah. I'm just going to power through. I'm just going to get through this. I'm just going to keep moving ahead. When God has not only wired into the economy of his kingdom, but also into the hearts of men or women, we need to stop. I cannot stop and speak and live out of a hurried life. And we are in times and days and situations right now when the people of God need to stop and rest and be restored in the presence of God so that we speak with clarity and power and we live with conviction When morning came, he called his disciples and chose 12 of them out of this group that had been following him. And he named them apostles. Disciples focusing more on the learning student-pupil aspect. Apostles being more of a messenger or an envoy, a delegate with the emphasis on being sent. Simon whom he named Peter and his brother Andrew and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. 
These 12 apostles were the beginning of the new Israel. The new leaders of the 12 tribes. This new way of living in the kingdom. And they were different. And they were diverse. And they were odd. And if you could open a door to a room they were all sitting in, you would have to look at them and say, the only thing these guys have in common is Jesus. Some lean towards the zealots and some lean toward the Herodians and compromiser. But you, but you could just open the door and look at them and say, but, but what they have in common is Jesus. God, you, you are awesome in every sense of the word. You have, you have marked time with a day that you want to spend with us offering rest and restoration offering peace and we so often push it away you lead us and long to lead us to people and situations in which we can get a fresh glimpse of who you are. Situations in which we can trade our old cartoons of you into clear portraits of you. And Father, we ask that as we prepare for this next time of reflection and communion, whatever disorienting dilemma we're in or near this morning, we, we would find stability in Jesus and the elements here before us. May this moment in itself be a time to tangibly taste and see your goodness and put action to the thoughts and prayers and commitments we've been mulling around this last half hour.